podcast is brought to you by Simon Vetter, one of the authors of Leading with Vision, the leader's blueprint for creating a compelling vision and engaging the workforce. Please listen to podcast number 681 with Simon and Greg as they discuss how to emotionally engage the new, younger workforce, shape a high-performing culture, and create a business strategy to disrupt your industry. Simon Vetter is an expert on leadership development and behavioral change. With over 20 years of experience in executive education, he has coached and trained leaders from Adobe, Cisco, Dell, Microsoft, Siemens, and many other companies. Learn from Simon what it takes to develop and implement a compelling vision. Please visit the book website at www.leadingwithvisionbook.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have a really good friend of mine joining me. And it's Don Green. Don has been on several times before. Don is the executive director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation, Think and Grow Rich. And for all of you out there, when you go to this blog, you're also going to have links to the other interviews that I've done with Don as well. Don't forget as well to tune in on iTunes or Google Play or uh, Google Podcasts, which is an application you can download for iOS or Android. Don, good day to you. How are you doing? I'm great, Greg. How are you? I'm wonderful. And I appreciate you taking this time. Um, You've sent me a couple of books lately. Uh, This is a great one. We're going to be doing an interview uh, next month uh, with Jeff Gommer on uh, Truthful Living. But today we're going to be talking about a book that's called Wishes Won't Bring You Riches. Uh, This is a series of interviews that Napoleon Hill did with Andrew Carnegie. And, you know, you state in the foreword of the book that this book starts once a plan has been made and is designed to help the reader kind of execute on their plan. Now, in the Napoleon Hill interviews with Carnegie, they focus on the concept of applied faith. Um, And I know probably many of our listeners have probably, oh, heard that term, but maybe don't know it as well as they should. What does the term applied faith stand for? And why is it so misunderstood? Because I think people think it has a religious context. And I think, you know, what... Andrew Carnegie said to Napoleon Hill was, that isn't the case. So can you speak with our listeners about that, Don? Yeah, sure. We all know what uh, faith is. It's just meaning having a belief in something or other. But uh, the part that counts is applied faith. You know, if you believe you can become or do uh, something, uh, you apply it. In other words, you take action on it. And uh, it, and he said over and over in his writings that um Applied faith was the only antidote uh, for failure. In in other words, uh, you've got to start off believing that you can make a difference, but you also have to act on it because uh, without action, nothing's going to happen. It's just a real, real important uh, principle as far as the principles of success that he spent a lifetime studying writing, interviewing people over, was the people that accomplished, they had a belief 
that they could apply what they knew and what they learned and what they get from others, and they could accomplish their goals. Well, yeah, this particular book focuses on applied faith and enthusiasm. And, you know, there's really only two, I'm not going to call them chapters because the book is pretty lengthy, but two segments to the book. And these are the two segments that we're talking about. Now, uh, Don Carnegie spoke at length about this law of harmonious attraction in conjunction with applied faith. Um, how does, or how do you understand based upon what Carnegie said uh, to Napoleon Hill in these interviews that harmonious attraction works? Well, you know, of course, we all know about the book, The Secret, that was such an outstanding uh, success, but um, the the first that uh, in-depth writing Hill did on the law of attraction uh, was in March of 1919. He he wrote at length on it in on his Golden Rule magazine. I published that article in a book with Wiley about I believe nine years ago called Napoleon Hill's Golden Rules. It was lessons. He called them lessons on applied psychology. And uh, he covered he covered that, uh, and uh, it's probably a little deep for uh, for lots of uh, people that don't understand it. But uh, I always think of the golden rule: we basically receive back what we send out, and um, and it goes it goes back to receiving something. Other, you have to first give to get. You can uh, you can call it planting an acorn and watching a, a, a tree emerge from it, or it's planting a thought and, and seeing it come to its fruition by the action that we, uh, that we take. Um, it's not, lots of people would think it, um, you can simply uh, think, and which is very important, but you must also act because uh, that misleads a lot of people. They think they can manifest they can think about a new car or losing weight, and it's just going to happen. And that's not the, that's not the case. You have to do something or another to make that belief become real. Most importantly, and I think, you know, if you look at and read these interviews, which which I did with Andrew Carnegie, you really understand for the time in which these were being done that not only Napoleon Hill, but Andrew Carnegie was tremendously advanced in his thinking about spiritual concepts and the way in which the mind works and how it manifests things. And again, as I read these again, because I've read many of these, not only does it fascinate me, but it fascinates me at the time in history when this gentleman was actually speaking with Napoleon Hill about this. And Carnegie states that he said, someone said that the imagination is the workshop of the soul. I loved that statement from the book. Of that, I'm not sure, he said. But there is evidence that it is the workshop of the conscious mind. He said that the mind has been provided with the stimulative capacity of desire and enthusiasm. enthusiasm which man's plans and purpose may be given actions through the imagination. 
How do you think people listening to us today, Don, can stimulate what he's talking about, which is this imagination, which I totally concur is so important. We seem oh, to lose it, sight of it. It's one of my favorite. There's a, there's a book I read many years ago, uh, quite a few years ago, called Creative Visualization. I guess it's one of the most in-depth. It's written by an Indian, uh, Shad, uh, I forget the last name, but it's an Indian name. But uh, it's, it's utterly uh, a necessity for, to create new products or new ideas. The, it's, I liken it to, um, they say, uh, sight without vision is uh, is not so good uh and and it's but but vision is in forced progress of mankind is more important than eyes and science uh, uh jim stovall his first books and he was blind as you know and um, blind since he went to college uh, it uh, it uh, was his book was titled you don't have to be blind to see and of course he's blind but he has creative vision and creative vision is simply seeing what you want to be rather than what is. Even going back to the good book, Job told us, without a vision, my people perish. And if you're, if you're in poverty and you can see nothing but poverty, the chances are tremendous that you'll remain in poverty. And ever what your position is, you have to have a vision of seeing yourself simply where you want to be rather than where you are. And it's, 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 it's important, you know. He'll told us over and over again. It's like in thinking of money, just thinking that the money is going to come to you, it, it, you something's going to happen that you can create the money. And um, the, uh, it's, it's much more than you talk about somebody quoting it. I think it was, it was Einstein said, uh, it was imagination is more important than knowledge uh, because um, you can have the knowledge, but if you don't have the creative vision to interpret what you can do with what you've learned, you know, some of the smartest people in the world for it, book learning degrees and so forth, I would not call successful. Yet some people with a, with a limited education we know stories after stories of people that didn't finish college and even people that didn't finish uh, uh, finish uh, high school. I think it's much harder for a person without the education, but education alone doesn't ensure us. I mean, we, we know Bill Gates and numerous other uh, so-called dropouts that did pretty well, but they had visions right. uh, and, uh, and the visions of, Took them to where they wanted to go, not just having a vision, but having a vision and making the plans and taking the steps necessary. And when they fail, not look at it as failures, but as simply as an education. They did something that they learned from it, and they didn't. It didn't stop them. And and that's the difference in people. If you, yeah. you let yeah, failure yeah. stop you, then it's bad. But if you let failure teach you a lesson to try something else or make new plans or get help, then it was a lesson. And we can look at it as either 
a failure that stops us or steps that promote us. It's every which one we want to, to interpret it. But the good thing about it, Greg, is these decisions comes in place through our power of choice. And we're the, we're the only animal that has that right. You know, if you just think, think of all the creatures on Earth, the lion, the bears, the tigers, all of them so much more powerful at, at, than man is, yet they're under us, under beneath us because of one simple thing, and that's the use of our minds. Yeah, it is a, a, an amazing opportunity. And I, I said to a young man this morning that I was coaching, you know, I said the biggest challenge that most people in your industry have is in between their two ears. Um, and, you know, he was talking about how stifled the industry was. And I said, the only way above that is to elevate your thinking of how you're going to disrupt the industry. What are you going to do? And, you know, Carnegie quotes from the Bible. And he also talked in that, um, in the, in this particular book, um, Wishes Won't Bring Riches book, about giving back and how important it was to give and help people find this vision. And he quotes that the Bible, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What do you believe, Don, has to happen for people that are listening to believe, trust, and know in the unseen and the unknown? Because, you know, you're, you, we, we visualize but we don't always know how we're going to get there. You know, the road doesn't always have a straight path. And I think a lot of people think, well, I'll do my plans and I'm going down the road here. And the reality is you and I both know that it can take three times as long. It could take half the amount of time. It could cost twice as much money. It could require more resources than you ever thought. Um, how do you help people uh, believe in and trust in this unseen and unknown. Well, it's probably not real easy, but I, I think uh, I think the suggestion is to it is really suggestions, auto suggestions. There's a book I used when I was teaching this class in college, uh, title of "What Do You Say When You Talk to Yourself" by a guy named Shad Helmstetter, and the book topic was really, really something. It's most important conversations we'll ever have in our life is those conversations we have with ourselves. Now, if someone says to Greg, what do you mean you're going to go in business and you're going to do this, you're going to do that? I mean, you don't have that background. You can do two things with that. You can accept it or tell yourself, you can tell it, said, well, I guess he's right. Your spouse says, you're wasting too much time. Uh, you can start telling you, well, I should never start it. But when you talk to yourself and say, I can't do it, there's no way, I don't know why I waste my time, then you're doomed because we tend to believe every what we tell our subconscious, especially if we repeat it over and over again. So the conversations we have with ourselves are more important than any conversation anyone will ever have with us because we tend to believe our own self especially if we repeat them. And that is the way we learn. I know we got some people with a photographic mind that can read something and repeat it back. But I'm talking about material that we get in our subconscious. 
like simple example is our multiplication tables. How did we learn them? If someone says, Greg, what's eight times eight? No one might have not asked you this in the sixth grade, but it's 64. You have to recall it, but you didn't get them all the first time unless you was a lot smarter than I was. Or ABCs, we said them over and over and over so we could say them all without leaving a few of them out. And that's the same way this material we have to, you can post signs, you can write it on your hand, uh, put it on cards. I used to keep cards when I was in the banking business for, the, God knows I was a bank president 20 years, but I worked in the finance industry. Uh, let's see, about four, close 40. And I kept three by five cards with things on them. It, it, if I had a moment on the phone, I'm waiting at a red light, waiting on somebody to join me for lunch. I, 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 re, I would read those things. I would read them several times during the day before I went to bed. I would, I would read those things to me. And looking back, some of them probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world. But, you know, you're you're 20 years old and you're doing this stuff. And you're thinking gold Rolexes, maids in the bank. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, and and so and so forth, black Mercedes, but things we keep repeating to ourselves until we believe them. I think the odds are pretty good that'll happen if we take the action and use persistence. Hill used to say when he was out speaking, "Someone has some good plans. How many times do they try before they give up?" And the audience was hollering. Some of them hollered one. Some say five. Some say two. He said, no, I asked you the average. He said, the average is less than one. He said, so many people never even start. And some try right. one time and said, well, you know, that's, that's, this is going to be difficult. It's not worth it. Or that spouse told me, or, you know, a boss said, you know, you, you, it reminds me of the story, the Piggly Wiggly. You know, uh, Clarence Saunders uh, working in a store in Memphis, and he went to a cafeteria, and uh, he'll tell his story. And, he went to the cafeteria and he's boy, he just liked that. You know, you go down through there and you want vegetables, you want this meat, you want this seafood, whatever. You just go through there and pick them out and you do it yourself. You know, you go and get in line and go through there and get the food. So he goes and tells his uh, boss that uh, let's do our grocery store like that. When people come in here with a list, just let them go back there and we can give them a car or give them something that they can carry it in and uh, they can go back there and get the stuff off the shelf and bring it up to the up here and, and check it out and pay for it. And he said, now, Clarence, he said, that's the last crazy idea. I'm going to listen to you. He said, you fired. So he started a chain, which has become known as Piggly Wiggly. Just on that simple concept, hey, we trust the people. We display all of the products out there where they can get to them easy. They go by there and pick up stuff and, and maybe they see stuff on there that they want to buy they didn't even have on their list. And they will spend a lot more money. And then they get up there and they pay for it. And, uh, of course, it become a franchise and he sold out. And, and it made him a millionaire, that one simple idea. One simple idea. He just had a vision seeing the uh, cafeteria that, hey, this could apply to grocery shopping. And, uh, and of course, now that's always that's always seen today or some aspect of it, as it was, which was once simple idea that he had a vision of seeing and uh, and not only that was uh he could have when he got fired he could have went out and gave him a job done something other else and said well i guess the boss is right he's you know he's in business i just a lowly employee what do i know but he didn't take that 
he he saw it and he had a vision this is what could be and he brought it he brought it about and i think it's a wonderful story a telling uh how things changes changes it may just be a simple change or it may be something um completely new as uh, uh you know edison had more patents than anybody alive at the time but uh, most most of all of his things were simply things that existed and he made them better even the light bulb uh you uh the uh it was not a it was not a completely new invention uh he he took the idea of charcoal which uh you cover it and it comes charcoal and it burns burns slow uh, by a limited amount of oxygen get to it so they were already a vacuum tube it's really the job was finding something or another put inside of a vacuum tube when electricity applied to it it wouldn't just flash and burn out and um and that's where he said he did the 10,000 trials, and all he was hunting for some was some ailment. When it got electricity put to it, it just didn't blow up right then or go a few minutes and whatever until he found something that would last days and days. And, of course, now, you know, we got light bulbs. They keep improving them. They're not new inventions. They're simply improvement over, on old things. Uh, well, I that's think- true. That's true with so many things. I mean, you look at these cell phones that we have today, and, Really, the cell phone from the beginning, yes, it's just constantly improvement. It's a new version. It's a new this. It's a new that. And there's so many examples of that, that how products evolve from, you know, now it's LED bulbs, so they burn brighter and they shine brighter and last longer and use up less energy. It's just, it's, it's people in the lab making them better. And, you know, enthusiasm for me comes from within. And it is the connection to a higher power, God, whatever our listeners want to call it. How do you light the flame of enthusiasm or how do you think Hill would or Carnegie would um, so that people can achieve their desires and their goals? How do we light that flame of enthusiasm? You know, we have this vision. We've got to put enthusiasm behind it. And we've got to have a belief in something bigger than ourselves, so that when we do fall down, we have that faith in ourselves to get back up again. How well, would you answer that, Don? You 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 described enthusiasm. It is within. In fact, there's a breakdown of the word. The theos is a Greek word for God, so it is a spirit inside of us. The enthusiasm, and uh, it, it's not something you teach. Uh, I remember doing a fundraising with. Uh, uh, old friend Zig Ziglar one time, and he says, "You know what it mounts to is just, it's just how bad do you want it? You know, do you do you want to leave the world better than what it really when it, when you came in, and through ever what uh, ever what? And we're not truly happy until we're making a difference in other people's lives. I did a we did a fundraising in uh, Malaysia right after the tsunami. I believe there were two hundred and twenty five thousand some people drowned." And I spoke. It was a fundraising thing. They took up donations and so so forth. There's a large. It's an auditorium. There's a lot of a lot of people. And one of the guys that, that uh, spoke, or it was either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. One I can't remember which, because that's been quite a few years back. But he told me something other. I said I really hadn't thought much about. But he said one guy walked up to another one and said, uh, called him by his name. Said, I understand you lost everything you had. He said, oh, no, said, I didn't lose none of my family. And see, you know, he could have concentrated on the loss of his house and his car. But but uh, the people over there, they were no looting, nothing. 
the people were helping each they were helping each other and he said over his years of practice he he it just hit on him that he had never treated no one for anxiety and depression that was heavily involved in a cause making a difference in other people's lives because while our mind is real complicated we can't concentrate on ourselves you know we can and do nothing else oh poor little me i didn't get that job john got a bigger raise than i did and i show up to work better than he does you go on and on look here at my check look how much taxes it took. you can go on and on and on about, uh, about about the things but he said people involved in helping other people or they had a good cause that kept them enthused they get up for more and i'm one of them god knows i can't of a morning i'm waking up and i got things on my mind and at uh said god what can i do today and knowing i'm gonna have a chance to uh do a little encouragement write a note to someone uh, say something on the phone to someone because that's what fulfills us that we're in a position you know even money itself you know i know we are at the root of all evil it's not it's love of money a whole lot of difference you can have money or money can have you but the these uses of money and, and of course and not too many uses of it these four to be exact and i've studied it for all my life being a banker the first one's needs food clothing and shelter is which is eisenhower said if that's all you want you can get that in prison food clothing and shelter but the second one is we need money some form when we get too old to work too old to produce and what have you and the third one is i would call good life Greg, I'd like to take Greg out to the best restaurant in town and tell, yeah, Greg, I'd like to take you, but I'll have to wait till the first month to get my check. It takes money to lead a good life and have the things that we don't necessarily need, but that we want to give us satisfaction, a better life, travel, what have you. And the fourth, fourth one, which completes the circle, the fourth one is we've took care of the first three, and the fourth one allows us to make a difference in other people's lives or other causes. It can be St. Jude's. It can be the Heart Association. It can be your grandkids. It can be your university. It can be your uh, the, the church or whatever. But most people never reach that stage in their life because they're never they're never, they're not truly successful. They're spending their whole life satisfying their needs and their wants, and they never reach the stage of where they can make a a, a, a big difference in other people's life. Well. And that actually leads right into this next question, which is really timely. You know, in the book, Carnegie states that he has a great deal of money, but that if you don't use your money to help others find their places in the world, it's of no use. If you want to find this happiness that you were t talking about in the work that you do, what suggestions do you have for the listeners? You said the fourth one was, that last one, giving your money away, and Carnegie was big advocate of that because he said that the money that he earned, he needed to help people find places in the world where they felt of use. What comment would you give about that, Don? Well, I admire him from doing it. Of course, you know, the, <clears throat> we all know he came over here with a 10 years old and worked for a little over a dollar an hour as a bobbin boy in a textile place. But... Uh, 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 Colonel uh, uh, Edwards, he called him. He worked with him. He let the boys go by his home on a on the weekend on a Saturday, and they could check books out. 
and of course, in Carnegie's reading list was very varied. He had very little. He had very little education, but he loved to read. So real, it followed in his life, and all. it's real simple for me to understand why he would want to make a difference. And I think if I remember right, 2,500 uh, libraries he set up all over the United States, and some in Scotland, which is his native native country. And I think he saw the, what the books had done to him. I mean, he read everything. The I mean, History of Western Civilization, you know, which is a whole series. He he read everything, and he saw the need uh, for reading. But he also, which I don't, I like. I'm president of the foundation board of the University of Virginia, which is a fundraising portion of the college. And I guess it's because I was a banker. Our kids graduated with the second lowest debt load of any four-year college in the United States last year. We've raised a lot of money. We've got a lot of a lot of students that are. Uh, I think a percentage is like 80% of them parents never went to college because we're in the coal fields, mountains. Uh, I guess considered a poverty-stricken area. Though we have uh, people that's done well. Some people do well anywhere. But uh, I, I think the uh, seeing the need for the books and what they've done to them was easy to see where he he got attracted there. But what I would emphasize, Greg, is to find something. It's what gets me up over the day, keeps me going. Is they, people talk about, yeah, he leave a legacy or he leave a bunch of money for this cause or that. Why can't you live a legacy? Why can't why can't I do something while I'm here? I could see these young people going to school and graduating, becoming pharmacists, become medical doctors, becoming school teachers, and so forth. I can see that while I'm still here. I don't have to wait till after I'm gone and leave a certain amount of money for a scholarship or this or that cause, whatever it is. We can also do it while we're while we're still alive and enjoy seeing the results of what we've done, which simply encourages us to do more. So most definitely, and I think you're right. You know, uh, I tell people to all the time, like you've always advocated mastermind groups, but to get involved with a charity, a local charity um, that you have a, a value alignment with, that you have a cause and something you want to do. I've been involved in so many YMCA and uh, the Autistic Society and all kinds of things I've done, Special Olympics. And I think, you know, there's a time and a place for everything, but definitely get involved and don't just give your money give of yourself because it isn't always about the money a lot of times these places need your input they need your ideas so do that and you know don carnegie speaks about poverty consciousness and kind of to wrap this interview up that's a that's a big word you know there is a lot of people out there that fall into the traps of poverty consciousness i remember somebody saying once and i don't know if it was a uh, uh, just trying to think, but it says, are, are you poor? Right. And in this case, he says, no, I'm not poor. I might not have the money, but I'm not poor. And in this chapter on enthusiasm, Carnegie talks about this. How do people overcome the clutches that I think what happens, it grabs them of this poverty consciousness that he talks about? Well, you know, we tend to we tend to end up with what we keep our mind on. You know, Hill tells us to it all of his literature to keep our mind on what we want, keep our mind off of what we don't want. And of course, again, I think the uh, the thing is uh, activity is a solution. Do something or other about it because we 
Mr. Stone used to tell us, uh, W. Clement Stone, of course, you know his story, started out $100, and tell me a dad, he'd give away $450 million. He died at uh, age 100, and I was privileged to be invited to his, he called it celebration of life. And uh, uh, he uh, um, he said that the mind was, you can't think, for example, you got a problem. He said, you can't solve something by just thinking. But you can you can do you can act because our mind can't concentrate on a negative and a positive at one time. You know you can you can look at uh, at something other happened and you can see it as either you can interpret it as either a problem or as an opportunity. And uh, I think that's extremely important. Of course, he used to tell us all the time. We we think Nike may have borrowed it from him, but he used to tell us we discussing something other. This was years ago. He'd say, just do it. In other words, you can't sit down. You can get what you think's an answer on paper or thinking, whatever. You, but it's not going to happen as long as you're just thinking about it. You have to have movement. You have to have, act, you have, to have activity. And, of course, he'll warn us that. I got a wonderful uh, speech he'll give. It's on tape, and I converted it to a, to a CD. I've never, uh, I've never put it on a marketplace. But it's entitled Success Consciousness. In other words, keeping our mind on success, and that's what he tells us. Keep our mind on the things we want. Keep them off the things we don't want, and we we can only do that with one way, and that's with uh, activity, doing something other. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw a little clip on t on TV once of this old lady. She said that uh, that when she worried uh, was worried, she'd go out in her garden and she would hoe because she couldn't hoe and do the weeds and, and stop to, to look at the crop and all and staying busy and worry at the same time. So she simply was using hoeing in her garden as an activity to take her mind off of what she, what she had, what she was worrying about. It's so true. And like you said, if you can just focus on that one uh, most important desire or vision, like you said, that book that you read on creative visualization is so important. Stay focused on that and put more of your energy on that versus the negative. You know, they, we have 60,000 thoughts a day, I think it is, that come into our minds. And the most important part is not to allow those ones that constantly want to ruminate in there and turn over and over and over again to take over. Um, rise above that. And I want to encourage my listeners to go to naphill.org, Don. And at the website, there's 10 top best-selling books from Napoleon Hill. I Think and Grow Rich for Women, How to Own Your Own Mind, which we did an interview on, which we'll have the link to, The Magic Ladder to Success, Think and Grow Rich, the original, Proven Principles of Greater Wealth, Health, Happiness, and Success, The Wisdom for Winners by Jim Stavell, uh, Think and Grow Rich, another small little book that you've given me, The Path to Personal Power, the new book coming out by Jeffrey Gottimer, The First Writings of Napoleon Hill called Truthful Living, and Your Right to be Rich, um, Proven Program for Prosperity and Happiness. Any of these books, my friends, including the one we just talked about, would be an opportunity for you to start. Um, this were this wishes without won't bring riches, I should say, is the book that I've been talking to Don about. But any of Napoleon Hill's works um, will actually help take you there where you need to go. 
Any parting words, Don, that you'd like to leave for the listeners? Go to inaphill, N-A-P-H-I-L-L dot O-R-G. This will be in our link in our blog as well. Uh, Don, anything you want to let, leave the listeners with? Well, just like uh, two things. One is Mark Twain said, people don't read are no better off than people can't read. But but I was just thinking years ago of the most successful people I've been fortunate to be around. And they had one thing in common. They were all great readers. People that you wouldn't even think about. Great readers. And I could list I could list the names of some of them. But the, but the most successful people I know in life, and I don't mean this ones that's made the most money, but the ones that I think is making money's fine. But people who've made a difference, they're all well-read people and we never we never stop learning when we think we know it all then we're in trouble we're in bad trouble because there's a new book or something or another we can acquire information on uh, at a continuous pace uh, our biggest job is just picking out the ones that uh, we think will answer some questions and teach us things that we don't already know and um, wonderful a lot of uh, group of books out there like that Ham Settler that, that went on what do you say when you talk to yourself. They went on creative visualization. There's some wonderful there's some wonderful books out there um, that uh, that you can learn a lot from. Of course it'd be Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, his uh, his uh, associate uh, it's uh, it's amazing what we can learn from reading good books. And Don and also Napoleon Hill Foundation has plenty of good books. But again, for my listeners, uh, peruse through Inside Personal Growth. I think you'll come across lots of books like what Don's talked about. I love the fact that he recommended a few outside of the Hill thing, especially the creative visualization book would be good. And also the book that he mentioned during our interview here, What Do You Say When You Think, When You Talk to Yourself? Both of them sound like awesome books. So, Don, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with the listeners to talk about this new book called Wishes Won't Bring Riches, and it's a Napoleon Hill book. We'll have a link to that on Amazon as well. Thanks, Don. Thank you, Greg.